Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. This is a this is a real this is a real source of shame. We're talking about like <laughs> drudging up past trauma, right? <laughs> I I spent a year abroad in Spain, and when I was there, oh wow, did it hurt? <laughs> Sorry, that's my Groucho Marx for the, a joke for the day. He did the the cigar, I, I did the flick cigar and everything. Thing. Yeah. Um, no, but I I spent a year abroad in Spain, uh, quote unquote, studying. I'm I'm using the air quotes very very deliberately. As anybody would who studied a year abroad. Yeah, I yeah. In in the very pun sense of the word, yeah. definitely. Um, but while I was there, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to work on was my accent. And so I, I just, everywhere I went, I tried to mimic the local accent in Spanish. And I I just kept doing that because I was trying to train my ear for accents. Did you accents. speak with the lisp? I did, yes. Uh, in, That's even, true Spanish, folks. Yeah, even to this day, people are like, oh, so you you studied in Spain. And they, like, lift their little pinkies, you know, for the the, the like... Oh, you're so much better than us, right? You know, like how British like in SpongeBob, people hold their tea. When you teach him to draw, draw, uh, drink the tea, he said, pinkies up. Yeah, pinkies up. Because they were talking about airs, putting on airs. That's what they do when they talk about my accent in Spanish. <laughs> um, but but when I was in England, I, I, I went to England for a couple of weeks to stay with my family, and I faked a British accent the entire time. <laughs> and here's the thing. I was and your with family's my, British? I was, my family is British, yeah. They're all British. Uh, and my, my grandmother, who's British, and has known me my whole life. I, I mean, I've spent so much time with my grandmother. She's probably going to listen to the podcast if she ever hears about it. Um, but I faked my accent the whole time, even around my British grandmother, who knows I'm not British, and knows that I do not speak with a British accent. And nobody called me out on it. Nobody was like Trevor. Why are you? Why are you using this fake British accent? And I was like, I, I'm just, I'm trying to learn accents, right? But like nobody <laughs> asked the question. I just I got away with it for two weeks, just just faking it. So so true story. I've got one to to go with that. You know, my wife is from Chicago, right? Yeah, lovely woman, yeah. beautiful woman from the Irish Catholic neighborhood in South Chicago. She sounds Irish Catholic. She Chicago. does. She does sound Irish Catholic Chicago. I did the exact same thing. And I'm from like Arkansas. I was raised in Texas. I did the exact same thing. The last time we went to Chicago, I put on this fake Chicago accent, ended up joining the Italian mob. I'm not joking. <laughs> Hey, yo, over it's, here. It was, it, was, it was terrible. It was bad, but it right. got me into the mob. So. I'm, like, I'm like actively sweating thinking about this. <laughs> so why are we joking about, I don't know, what, what is okay, the purpose so of I this? I never even got to the actual story. So get I to the trauma, to man. All right, we only so have so much time. Trauma, right? <laughs> growing up, growing up uh, I was, you know, my parents were very conservative and they homeschooled me and so as uh i love where this is going already yeah as a homeschooled conservative right the only education i really had was like the christian approved curriculum and so i read just I, like you're looking at mr state colorado state bible champ over here that was my thing growing up right i just knew everything about the bible that was my whole education. And so one day I was hanging out with some kids that uh, were, you know, the children of people in my parents' uh, Bible study group. 
And I was hanging out with this kid. He was a little bit older than I was. I was like maybe nine years old at the time. I think he was maybe 15. And he looked at me and he said, Trevor, have you ever been stoned? <laughs> and I did not know what that meant. I only knew the biblical context, <laughs> which was people throwing stones at you until you die. <laughs> and I answered him. I said, well, sometimes, because I had been bullied, I had had kids throw rocks at me for knowing too much about dinosaurs back when I was in a private Christian school. So you were right? stoned. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm telling you right now, like, I was so unpopular as a kid that even in a private Christian school, I was uncool. So I was just trying to fit in with this 15-year-old kid who was so much cooler than I was. And I said, yeah, like, like sometimes. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, I get stoned every day after school. <laughs> And my heart broke for him because I was like, oh, my God, like even even the cool kids just get the shit beat out of them by this world. How how terrible is it? And then he followed up and he said, it's like I'm really just addicted to it or something. And I was even further confused because I was like, not only does this poor, cool kid just get beat up all the time after school but he has such a persecution complex that he likes it he's a masochist <laughs> that he's, he's a, a masochist yeah. <laughs> i was so confused i did not understand and it was only many many years later that i finally realized what he was talking about <laughs> He didn't ask you if you wanted to get stoned? No, well, I mean, he did, but I, I didn't, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't roll like that. I there's wasn't, a, there, <laughs> I didn't want to get. There's a comedy of errors there. Like, by, yes, Hey, exactly. if you eat this brownie, you'll get stoned. Why am I going to eat a badly cooked brownie? I don't, I've been really troubled by like, what is the moral <laughs> of this story, right? And I, I, I've, I think if I can put it into any terms, it's like, I'm pretty sure that kid's in prison now and I'm a college professor. So, you know. <laughs> Stay off drugs, kids. Okay, crime fighter McGruff. <laughs> That's your, your scruff. back to uh, scruff, scruff McGruff. Scruff McGruff. Ah, Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. 60652. Just say no. <laughs> yeah. Why are we talking about getting stoned today? Everybody wants to get stoned. We're talking about getting stoned today because we are talking about perhaps the most famous story about getting stoned in all of literature that does not feature Matthew McConaughey. It features or just, Mary Magdalene, just a woman uh, getting hit with a bunch of rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Who's never read this story? Yeah. You no, know, I hadn't. But that was also because of my very conservative <laughs> parents. <laughs> You'd think you'd be right up their alley, wouldn't you? I mean, I mean, my my father actually does love this story. He, when I told him that we were actually going to be recording an episode about this story, he was like so excited. Oh, so is your dad going to listen to this? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> He's going to hear that you know bit about trauma and share it with my mom, and she'll she'll be very upset. My parents did a great job. I feel well, like we did fine by you, job. Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> They're not. They're not quite that country. <laughs> that was my British accent from the rural areas of Edinburgh. 
<laughs> We've just lost the entire British audience for this show. <laughs> Wait, if you both come back, we'll uh, we'll do something nice <laughs> for you. Both come back. There were two of them. <laughs> it was my British grandparents. <laughs> Oh, so yeah, we're looking at Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, and some people might be wondering why we didn't start with something like, say, The Haunting of Hill House, and I say to you, because it's kind of been done to death, I think. We're... I mean, Haunting of Hill House is a wonderful story. It's, it's the absolutely great. It's the only horror story that very well and truly I can't finish because it's too scary. Oh, man. I, I, I thought it was terrific. I finished it. I loved it. I think um, the Michael Flannery uh, adaption on Netflix was pitch perfect and even though really he changes good. the the story up quite considerably i think it's it's a meta commentary i think it's pitch perfect i think it's great um yeah. i think we ought to do maybe some point in the future a real close examination of haunting of hill house um but i like the idea of starting with the lottery i think as famous as the haunting of hill house is i think the lottery is even more famous i feel like yeah. like as a and yes folks i i should reiterate this both Trevor and I are college professors, so see what you're missing by not taking our classes. Um, but I have taught this story before in a, a literature class, and I have um, I have uh, mentioned this story to students, and they've had no idea. They're like, the lottery, what? what's this about? And I'm like, you guys have surely read this. Surely. <laughs> Don't call me Shirley. You, uh, call her Shirley. Um, you've surely read this. And when I start describing the story to them, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I've read this story. I've read this story. So everyone knows this story. So we thought because it's so famous, we thought let's jump into The Haunting of Hill – or not The Haunting of Hill House. <laughs> the Lottery. The Lottery. The Lottery. By Shirley Jackson today. Yeah. I mean this really was the the story more than, than any of her other works that launched her into – stardom i think she became kind of the voice of american horror uh after this story came out uh she was born in san francisco california on december 14th 1916 spent a lot of her time writing short stories and poems uh, as both child and teen and she was pretty prolific at that right yeah, absolutely. Uh, we looked at ShirleyJackson.org to get some information um, from some of the terrific sources that are listed there on the website. Uh, but basically, she she briefly attended the University of Rochester, and then she went home and just practiced writing. And apparently, she produced a minimum of 1,000 words a day. How much is 1,000 words, Jeremy? So, like, 250 words on Microsoft word is one page so she was writing somebody do the math for me two pages is 500 words so she was doing about four pages of writing a day four pages a day of of and, and probably handwritten or on a typewriter yeah right? i would assume probably handwritten and that is huge that is a lot of writing it doesn't sound like it's that much writing four pages a day until you go and you sit down and you try to make that output yeah, every yeah. Have you tried to write four, four pages day. a day? Have you? Have you? Have you? Then shoot Every single up. day. And if you ask any of our undergraduate writers in you know, creative writing or you ask them in uh, college composition or something like that, they will tell you a thousand words? They That's bitch about that. That's They're a like, lot. Freshman comp. You mean I have to write an essay? It's a composition class. Comp stands for composition. <laughs> yes, you have to write an essay. A thousand words. A thousand words. Suck it up, buttercup. Yeah. So in 1937, she enrolled in Syracuse University and published her first story, Janus, 
and then worked as a fiction editor for the campus magazine. She won some contests. She founded a lit mag. So if this tells you anything, it's that if you're an author, find found either your own publishing house or lit mag because it's all the rage. I don't know anyone who's doing that right now, Jeremy. I don't either. I don't either, Trevor. He said with a new mic. Slayhouse Publishing. Slayhouse Publishing. Slayhouse Publishing. Slayhouse Publishing. Okay. We, should, we could actually get an echo effect on that sometime. We probably could. Yeah. She saw a lot of success at publishing in some well-to-do magazines, even getting a story selected for the best American short stories. It was called Come Dance With Me, Ireland. Yes. I and, believe that's right. Yep. Uh it, in, and in, oh, go ahead. No, in 1948, the New Yorker published the lottery. It's been published in dozens of languages. It's still taught in school. It's possibly one of the most well-known short stories in English. Um, and the New Yorker received so much hate mail about this story. It is hilarious. The so, stories that we heard about the New Yorker. So one thing we're going to do on Slayhouse's website is not only are we going to have a link to the podcast, but we're also going to give you a bibliography page where we get all of our sources. So you can see the books that we've used. You can see the sources that we founded. One of those sources is from a website called earlybirdbooks.com slash 10 stages of reading Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. And some of these responses um, are just completely just out of there so um a reader from georgia i'm going to read some of these responses yeah um i want to hear them again so a reader from georgia wrote i'm hoping you'll find time to give me further details about the bizarre custom the story describes where it occurs and who practices it and why yeah this person thought that the, that it was real like this was a real story and, and that's a recurring theme of a lot of these male uh, you know uh letters that came into Shirley Jackson's care. She talked quite a bit about how funny it was that nobody really asked her what the story meant. It was like almost everyone who was writing either wanted to know where it was taking place or how could how they could get there to observe one one of these lotteries. So an avid New York reader and and the website says and housewife said or wrote in and said, I frankly confess. Wait, I got to do this in my housewife voice. I frankly confess to being completely baffled by Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Will you please send us a brief explanation before my husband and I scratch right through our scalps trying to fathom it? We, we just lost the housewife demographic <laughs> as well. Please I'm, come back. If you come back, I'll tell you what. Um, uh, uh, Shirley Jackson's reply to that person was um, even Mr. Harold Ross, then the editor of the Unit of the New Yorker was not altogether sure he understood the story and was wondered and wondered if I cared to enlarge upon its meeting. This is Shirley Jackson responding to this, this lady, uh, Shirley Jackson said, I said, no. So there you have it. Um, also though, <laughs> not only if you think all these people were just avid readers, just, just people who didn't know her. Um, we have from Shirley Jackson's parents in a letter to their daughter, <laughs> Dad and I did not care at all for your story in The New Yorker. It does seem, dear, that this gloomy kind of story is what all you young people think about these days. Why don't you write something to cheer people up? (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, so even her parents didn't like the story, but the amount of fan mail they got on this was just phenomenal. So it tells you still that the best kind of press you can get is bad press. So yeah, I'm hoping you all hate this podcast and just talk about it incessantly. <laughs> it was one of the most written about stories from The New Yorker. And I think it's really interesting that it seized almost so immediately on the public consciousness. You know, it was just almost everywhere. People were talking about the lottery. They were sharing the the story around, um, you know, writing letters. It was the most certainly the most controversial story that I think the the New Yorker had ever published. Here's one more. Here's another one from Alfred L. Krober. He's an anthropologist at the University of California, Berkeley. More than that, he was the father to science fiction author Ursula Le Guin, wrote, If Shirley Jackson's intent was to symbolize and to complete mystification and at the same time be gratuitously disagreeable, she certainly succeeded. <laughs> so, ouch! Ruffled a lot of feathers. She did. She did. Um, this story is still told in high schools across the United States today. It was told in high school when my father went to high school. It was told in high school, even as recently as my wife. Uh, she went to high school and in Lincoln, Arkansas. And she said that she had a, like the her her professor or her teacher made a whole day just out of talking about the lottery in which they they read the story together and then her teacher took the whole class and gathered them together and, and had stoned them, them well that'd be fun. very close no you're <laughs> you're not wrong what she did she passed out all of these papers and then um Caitlin's class had to like pull the slips of paper out of a bucket and then one of them was marked and that kid had to stand at the front of the room while all the rest of the kids rumpled up paper and threw paper rocks at the person in the front of the room who was supposed to be stoned. Talk about trauma. I am telling you. And it's funny because when I talk to Caitlin about this story, she's like, oh, I love this story. And she she shares her experience in high school. <laughs> I don't think those kids ever talked about like the literary meaning of this story. They were they ju were just like, oh yeah, stoning people is fun. <laughs> well, maybe we should give somebody a, a, we should give our audience the the summary of the story. Or wait, should we? I mean, yeah. Spoiler alert on a story seventy three years old and taught in every single school. Yeah, yeah. So, do you want to tell them a little bit about what it's about? I do. So, uh, on a sunny June morning, a town of some 300 residents gather together in order to participate in an annual ritual they call the lottery. Once families are gathered around in the town square, the town officials present a black box stuffed with paper slips. Each family, in alphabetical order, steps up to the box to take a slip of paper. And then once the paper is distributed, the families open their slips to reveal the winning family of the lottery among whom a single member is randomly selected by a secondary lottery to be stoned to death. And if you want any more information than that about the story's plot, you should go read it for yourself. Yeah, it's really not that long of a story. It's really not. But it's dark, right? It's super dark. And a bit nihilistic. Like, kind of reminds me of, like, Lovecraft's outlook or even, like, Edgar Allan Poe's outlook on, on storytelling. 
Yeah, definitely. She's drawing from a pretty rich American tradition of horror, I think. Yeah. Uh, I was reminded a little more of like the Salem witch trials than Mm -hmm. necessarily H.P. Lovecraft, but certainly very dark themes, right? So like when I say like Lovecraft, I'm thinking of like if you buy into – and and I was thinking like Edgar Allan Poe too, but if you buy into Lovecraft's argument that like – horror comes from two schools of thought where you have this kind of whimsical like Nathaniel Hawthorne kind of story and then you have this dark nihilistic um, H.P. Lovecraft kind of horror story that she's definitely drawing on the the more of the the H.P. Lovecraft or the Edgar Allan Poe kind mm-hmm. of nihilistic story and this is I've, very dark. I feel like when it was published too, 1949 is a really important time in American history too. Because this is just after World War II has occurred and mm-hmm. all of these stories of horror you know, came back with that generation coming back from war. I think that a lot of 20th century horror fiction is, is oftentimes related to one of the two great wars or perhaps uh, what happened in Vietnam or, or Korea uh, later. And I, I'm sure we're, we're just around the corner from a lot of horror contemplating our role in conflict in the Middle East, right? Right, yeah. It, it's a, a common drawing point, I think, for, for these generations that are defined by a war effort to incorporate a lot of that in their fiction. And so it's, it's somewhat unsurprising, I think, that Shirley Jackson is writing about you know a story like this at the time she's writing it. And a lot of critics, too, who have read this story and tried to understand what is this story really trying to do have kind of boiled down their thoughts into basically three separate camps of analysis, right? The first are those that are talking about the story as it relates to the power of tradition in American culture. The second is about uh, agricultural fertility rituals, which we find in a lot of different um, kind of indigenous groups or societies, I guess you would say, uh, especially those from antiquity. And then we also see uh, a lot of criticism about the tendency to scapegoat individuals, which undoubtedly has a lot to do with those World War II critics reading this story and talking about its parallels uh, to like Jews in Nazi Germany, right? That seems to be too a prevalent theme in a lot of of war stories. Um, I mean, the the soldiers were definitely more uh, lauded and definitely more supported when they came home from Europe and from from the South Pacific during World War II. But if you look at like Vietnam, the soldiers when they were when they came mm-hmm. home, they were were vilified and like spit upon and just everyone turned their backs on them, and so. This idea of finding that scapegoat and finding that, right. that means out just is kind of prevalent through these stories. So Yeah, I, and I mean, we see elements of definitely of all three of those things in this group, right? There's this sense that they have to sacrifice someone from this community in order for the good of all. Um, that's the motivation there, which has its roots, as these critics say, in agricult- agricultural fertility rit- rituals. Right. Um, You sacrifice something to the gods and they give you a rich harvest or something like that, which is actually a line in the story. They I mean, not that they sacrifice to the gods, but that they do this. They say they do the lottery to ensure that good harvest. 
Yeah. And they, they talk about, um, the, the characters at least talk about how, well, they've done away with the lottery in these other communities and nothing bad has happened. And they, they report back, no, 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 They're, we're just waiting, right? It's going to happen. So I think for me, the story is definitely more about that, that a criticism of traditional thinking, right? I think that what Shirley Jackson is trying to dig into is basically this idea that, you know, we have these rich traditions and we have these, these kind of, I don't know, call them cultural rituals, I guess, um, that we kind of keep with us. But not always are those rituals or not always is that traditional outlook very healthy for a community. And in, in, in many cases, looking to try to keep a tradition or a ritual alive doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be good for the community, right? It can oftentimes even be very, very harmful. I look, for example, um, to like, like institutional racism. You know, today in 2021, that is something that we talk about a lot. You, you see in the news cycles, um, you know, these problems of, of institutional racism. And many times their defenders or the defenders of these institutions that may be harmful, right, say, well, they've been around for a long time. Uh, and, and they've been around, you know, in some cases, even after um, desegregation or something. So how could it be actively harmful to these groups uh, if, you know, this particular institution was established in, say, 1970? Or, you know, it was for some of them, it was established in the 1920s, uh, which was, you know, 40 years after slaves were officially freed or or uh, my, my my math is probably wrong there. I think no. it might be off. Might be like maybe 60 years or something, yeah, yeah, like, that. something uh, yeah. like that. Yeah. I'm not a history professor. I'm a literature professor, right? Damn it, um, Jim. I'm a Either way, but, you know, we're, we're talking about, the you know, these people who say, well, we've, we've done it like this for a whole long time. And, and what Shirley Jackson is saying is, sure, maybe that's the case. But is that necessarily good for our community? And I, I think that's the question that she's trying to pose to us through this story and the confusion that the American people had when this story came out about what this story is trying to teach us, what it's trying to tell us, I think is really telling about the way we kind of take a lot of these traditions for granted and don't really question them critically. Yeah, and she does this by – she tackles these themes by um... – by elements of her craft again. I mean, she um, she really uses the craft instead of just telling us these things in the story. She doesn't actually say any of this, but she points to it by the details that she chooses to include in the story. For example, the scene opens up with these little kids running around gathering stones. Um, it looks like a normal everyday summer picnic, a uh, town picnic. Um, the names that she offers up of the kids, the families... The, the locations around the town really paint a Norman Rockwell kind of Americana picture anywhere USA. But within those story beats, she hints at something wrong. She never tells us ahead of time that this lottery is bad instead or that it's dangerous so that it's going to end badly. Instead, she has lines like their jokes were quiet and they smiled rather than laughed, talking about the men that were gathered around which says volumes like that's that tells me that when you're 
when you're making these kind of remarks to you and your friends, you're in a somber situation. Um, you're not just guffawing and laughing out loud. You're you're really kind of reflective of what a, what's about to happen. And that idea of Christianity, too, I think, um, and this idea of not challenging the traditions really is illustrated well in her description of the stool and of the lottery box. Um, she talks about how the ancient rituals are lost to the modern um, lottery goer, that there were, there were once rituals and, and professions that were, were spoken of and all of this, and, and we've lost them over the years. She talks about the, the box sitting on a three-legged wobbly stool, which totally invokes like ideas of like Christian Christianity to me. Um, and the box has to be, and the stool has to be held while they stir the box. Um, she talks about, uh, you know, and for me, this draws comparison to like the modern day kind of churchgoers who've lost all this understanding of why these symbols and these rituals were important in church. They mm. just go and they're, you know, paying lip service. Are you saying that Joel Osteen may not be on the level? You know, um, let's go to his multi-billion-dollar mansion and ask him. I'm shocked. Um, in what you were saying too about tradition, I mean, there's there's this great juxtaposition of ideas where Old Man Warner ties getting rid of the tradition as a regression back to something primitive, which the whole ritual speaks of something primitive. Um, but then he also ties it to a sacrifice of a good crop, and. You know, these two ideas just don't mm -hmm. marry each other. They just totally oppose each other. Um, the uh, What else was I going to talk about with that? I totally forgot. My mind went blank. No, wait. It's right <laughs> here in front of me. Let me try this again. Um, uh, there's an indication that she writes within the narration itself that the ritual and the ceremony are not as important as the blood sacrifice. And it's that sacrifice that mm. really holds holds the, the which is really attention. interesting right because because i mean when we talk about ritual uh the the whole point of ritual right is is to kind of try to control events so that we strip out the the excess and and kind of bleed back into what is essential for good living i don't know when i think of ritual especially drawing back on my very christian heritage right um, I think of like the Old Testament and, and the way that the Old Testament was so very rigorous about laying down laws that you're supposed to follow as, as uh, at that point in time, right, a good Jew. Right? Yeah. And, and the reason for that isn't necessarily because all of these things are necessary to salvation, but it, it's as if what you're trying to do is keep the narrowest path possible so that you don't get lost, right? You don't lose sight of the end goal. But what happens when your rituals lose sight of that end goal and just become a kind of perfunctory action in and of themselves? What happens when you start taking communion simply for the fact that it's something you do and not necessarily because it's about what what communion is meant to symbolize? Right. And for me, this story, it, it not only does all of that, but it also tracks two different behaviors simultaneously. So we see in the short, because the story itself is really short. It's only like, what, five or six pages long or something? But mm -hmm. we see through the narration, the, again, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read a story 73 years old and taught in school, like Trevor said, um, 
is that Mrs. Hutchinson is the one to eventually get stoned. And we see as the lottery progresses, her growing trepidation for the eventual outcome, just as we see the rest of the town devolve almost as quickly into the savages that are just picking up stones and throwing them at her. And, and it's, it's tracked in real time, her growing trepidation with the town's de-evolution. And it's fascinating to see yeah. this. It's also really interesting. One of the things that I read in this critical commentary, uh, specifically, I'm, I'm looking at a paper that was written by Ted Bailey. Again, we'll put all of this on the website so you guys can go and find our sources and all yeah. of that. But this this article, Ted Bailey, talking about sacred violence in Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. That's that's his title there. From the Un- University of Miskolk. He talks very specifically about the way in which this tradition also traps these previous or, or these, these new generations, right? These current generations in this cycle of violence. And one of the most important things about, I think, ritual and about tradition is maintaining that tradition through a new generation. And and so in this story, you'll notice that Shirley Jackson, um, or, 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 you know, the, 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 her characters, right. Are specifically incorporating these youth into this very barbaric practice. Yes. The youth who are, who are, position to go and pick up all the stones yeah right? they they pick up the stones and then job. they they also you know pull papers uh there's mm-hmm. there's like a joke about one of the smaller child or children who's you know trying to pull like five at once or something mm-hmm. like no 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 you only get one um and they pick up their rocks too and, and, and sling them and I, I think what shirley jackson is trying to say here is is that you know when when these individuals become trapped in this cycle of tradition. They can't envision a, a way out of it. Even when they see something that might not be beneficial to the community, you know, like this, that might be like actively harmful. I mean, they're killing a person with rocks, right? When they're inoculated to this at such a young age, when they're introduced to it and it becomes part of their culture, part of their identity, it's that much harder to divorce themselves from it because if, if they were at ever point at any point in time to stop it, to say, no, this is really barbaric. We're, we're killing people. We're actually throwing rocks and pelting them and killing them. They would have to reckon with the fact that they're murderers. Right. And that's not necessarily who they believe themselves to be. So there's, there's this vulnerability that this tradition feeds on in order to work. Right. You rope these people in, you keep them trapped, and then when that becomes such a core part of their identity, it becomes hard to separate from those two. It's hard to look at yourself as a victim, in other words, of a a harmful institution when you're also a part of that institution. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's almost like they're in a cold, 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 cold. We just lost Joel Osteen from our audience. Well, good riddance. Um, <laughs> everybody, get That's well, my Bob Dylan. Does everyone like my Bob Dylan? I mean, I like your Bob you know Dylan Bob more Dylan than is. I like your British accent. That probably hit a little close to home, didn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, so... Why don't we take a minute to remind people what Slayhouse Publishing is? Slayhouse yeah, Slayhouse Publishing. Slayhouse Publishing. We publish books. 
We also have a podcast. We are on all kinds of social media. We're on Twitter. We're on TikTok. We have a website. We are on what other social media groups? We're on Reddit. We're on Reddit, Instagram. We're on Reddit. Yeah, and Instagram. And Facebook, for those of you happening folks who still subscribe to Facebook. We're still talking to my grandparents here. Oh, yeah. They're on Facebook. They'll find us. Do they have MySpace? Should we get on MySpace? I think MySpace was like eighth grade me. You know, is MySpace I, even still? A I thing? was really into Cutlass it is. at that age. Okay, all right. Um, that, was it. that was a joke. I'm trying to bring on, some of that Christian crowd back. Are Joel we on, Austin fan? Are, are we on Tinder? Are we on Tinder? <laughs> Slayhouse on Tinder. Are we on Grinder? Can you find us? This makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Joel Austin um, looks like. Richard Gere and Jerry Seinfeld put together. <laughs> he does. He does. Our our producer just said, Joel, I don't know if they can they hear you, Curtis, on here? Yeah, probably not. They're probably not. He just said that Joel Osteen looks like Richard Gere and Jerry Seinfeld had a child. And <laughs> He's a scary dude. He is a scary, scary fella. He's, he could have bankrolled this whole operation. He turned us Come down. on, Joel. Come on. <laughs> the, the offer's still open, Joel. Yeah. Fund us, man. We'll, just you know what? Get on our Patreon I, and just throw, fund us. I'm going to throw like, it out there. I listen, Joel Osteen fans. We'll publish the next Joel Osteen book if he wants us to. We'll, I'm just we'll, you know if that brings you back to Slayhouse Publishing, Joel. Yeah. House Publishing. We'll do Slay it. House we'll do it. We'll um, we do have a book out right now. Uh, a Mindful of Scorpions on Amazon and Barnes and Noble by J.R. Billingsley. We have uh, a. A short story anthology contest, or not really contest, but just an open call coming up this fall. Um, so we're looking for, we're going to be looking for short story artists. Send us um, your submissions. We yeah. would love to read your Send stuff. Send us your Joel Osteen fanfic. Um, <laughs> Listen, if you, I'm throwing this out there. I wanna, if you I can wanna, write a I convincing Joel... horror story featuring Joel Osteen. I, I will pay Austin you out of my personal pocket for that. That I, sounds great. Well, we're pretty small, so I think we are paying people out of our well, personal pockets. Well, I wasn't going right to admit that just yet. You can also support us on Patreon, or you can buy us a coffee yeah. if you'd like. Uh, Patreon proceeds this week are going to my bicycle repairs. I have been riding a unicycle to work for the last couple of months and I'm ready for two wheels. I'm ready to step up to two wheels, Jeremy. Awesome. Awesome. I I think from my part of the Patreon proceeds, I am going to buy, it it was an old device called a come along, right? And you use it like fence building. It had chains and like a wrench on it to like, you know, pull stuff together. I'm going to use that. If you decide to fund our Patreon to remove that giant stick from Joel Osteen's ass. So if you I, if you support us, I will buy the come along to remove that stick I from was, his ass. I was there at the beginning of that joke. I didn't know where you were going with it. And now you're sorry. I and I, no, I went along. I was, I was there for, I came along for the ride. You got it. <laughs> Stuck the landing. <laughs> All right, everybody, Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. And uh, until then, um, stay cool. Yeah, stay cool and keep it spooky. Keep it spooky.